that was a glimpse, a glimpse of where, what, what I think this team can do and where I think it can go. Well, if that's a glimpse of what they can be, they just put the college football world on notice. The Florida State Seminoles, we will break that one down against LSU. And then I have 10 things here for you today that we learned from week one of the college football season. I'm Greg McElroy. Thanks for being with us. Welcome to Always College Football. It's a Labor Day edition of Always College Football, and we have a lot of fun topics that we want to get into. We have so many takeaways from the weekend, so many takeaways from the weekend. I'm going to give you 10, and we're going to touch probably 40 teams in the process all over the place, evaluating matchups, evaluating performances, evaluating liabilities. That's what we do here on Always College Football. Please continue to like, rate, and subscribe. If you like what we're doing, your ratings, five stars, please, would be amazing. If you're watching us here on the YouTube channel, hit that thumbs up. If you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast, that'd be awesome. We so appreciate all the reviews that have been coming in as well. We see you guys, and we appreciate you, Duke, Hunter, all you guys that left reviews last week. Thank you so much for all you do here at Always College Football. We're nothing without y'all, and we look forward to attacking the season alongside you. But without much further ado, let's dive into the game of the weekend, Florida State LSU. Biggest game of week one in the books last night, that would be Florida State and LSU. I loved this. I saw this on a Florida State site, so I wanted to give a little credit where credit is due. This was exactly the mantra of the rebuild that Mike Norvell has implemented. First, you lose big. Then you lose close, then you win close, and finally you win big. That was a mantra that was adopted by Bobby Bowden, and I think it holds true to where Mike Norvell in this program is currently at. My goodness, what a second-half performance. few takeaways from this one. Let's start with the victors, Florida State Seminoles. We know now probably better than we knew coming in. We know now that that wide receiver core is a real problem for the opponent opponents that they'll face this year. We know that Johnny Wilson, who, by the way, had a couple of fun characteristic drops coming into his college career at Florida State. That was the big question mark, a little inconsistent with his hands, had a couple drops, but also made some big plays. And he's not a guy I'm going to spend a lot of time worrying about. I know he's going to be legit. But how about the emergence of Keon Coleman? When you now pair those two guys, one at 6'7", one at 6'4", you become an automatic mismatch everywhere you go on the field. And to think when you have to deal with Keon Coleman in a 50-50 ball situation, he's going to win. It's not 50-50 when you target Keon Coleman. He now has nine contested catch touchdowns in the last two seasons. That leads college football including two last night, high point in the ball, going up, timing it, dragging it down. He is very strong. He's very athletic, and he is going to be a nightmare for the opposition if he can continue on. Had nine catches on his 12 targets, had 51 yards after catch, obviously a bunch of touchdowns in the process, three to be exact. He also was chosen by Mike Norvell to break the rock afterwards, so deservingly so, what a debut for the Michigan State transfer. Let's also talk a little bit about how I thought Florida State was a team that we knew had great athleticism. That shouldn't surprise anybody. But now what I'm really encouraged by is that they can bully you a little bit. I mean, they really can just push you off the ball. And 
Mike Norvell remains, and I've said this before. I think Mike Norvell in the run game, how he schemes the run game alongside Alex Atkins, their offensive coordinator, offensive line coach, Mike Norvell calls the plays, but how they scheme the run game and how they marry up the run game is really encouraging. This is a group last year that we knew could bully lower-level competition. They pushed Georgia Tech around. Uh, They pushed Miami around. Um, But they didn't really push around Florida. They didn't really push around Oklahoma. But now you're going up against an LSU front that is really good. And I know they were without Mason Smith, but Makai Wingo is phenomenal. We saw it on display a couple times last night. Big number 18, if you're not familiar with who Makai Wingo is, his quickness off the ball, his get-off, is a handful. But my goodness, I mean, Florida State knows how to negotiate it. They pull guys. They create extra gaps. They have misdirection. And Trey Benson is only going to get better as they move forward in the season. So we can now see Florida State bullying you. And then they are as advertised on the defensive side. Being able to hold up in the run game the way they did. And then you get obvious passing situations. And Patrick Payton and Jared Verse. If you can do me a favor and somebody out there, tell me a team that has a better edge presence than Florida State, that based on what you saw here in week one, there wasn't a team that I saw, maybe North Carolina more on them in a bit, but that edge presence that those guys are able to create against an offensive line last year that we thought might be coming in as a strength for LSU, it was exposed last night. So truly a remarkable performance. I have the Seminoles in the playoff, so I've been high on them all offseason. I think they win the ACC, and granted, we haven't seen Clemson yet, but very optimistic, very optimistic about what I saw from them last night. They are a legitimate national championship contender. Let's get to LSU for the moment. They have to get something out of the run game. That was an issue all last year. We know that the running backs last year, not a huge factor in the game, and here we are again. 2023, Jaden Daniels leads LSU in rushing, 64 yards. Josh Williams had the one run that was a nice gain, but they couldn't get much going in the run game. The the rest of the running back room outside of Josh Williams had just 11 carries for 14 yards. That's not going to be enough. They have to take some of the pressure off Jaden Daniels, especially against a group that can ah, just really wear you out in the pass rush. You have to be able to get your offense into a more manageable, not the obvious passing downs on third and longs. So they really got to figure that out. Uh, They have excellent weapons. We know that. And if you look at just how many yards after catch they're able to create, I love Thomas. I love Lacey. I love, uh, I obviously love what we'll see from Malik neighbors. I think their weapons are terrific, but the run game, man, they got to take some of the pressure off the passing game. Are they misusing second takeaway? Are they misusing Harold Perkins? I've seen a lot of buzz about this. Uh, I've seen a lot of people saying, well, he's not put in position to be successful. He had 28 snaps yesterday in which he dropped back in coverage, and he had just seven pass rush attempts. So the answer is yes. They need to put him in position to make an impact in the pass rush. That's his best attribute. And he's going to spy the quarterback, and I understood the plan. I think Matt House is a great defensive coordinator. He's a terrific defense coordinator, and I think he'll figure this out. But there was an effort to move him off the ball and to put him an off-the-ball linebacker where he can read and react and make an impact every single play of the game as opposed to just the obvious pass rush situations that he impacted last year. 
I think they might need to go back to the drawing board a little bit based on what I witnessed last night. He looked like he was playing a little slow. He looked like he was trying to read a little bit too much. His best attribute is when he just goes, man. I mean, shoot your shot. That's Harold Perkins. And he needs to get back to doing that. And Madhouse needs to figure out the best way for him to be able to do that. The offensive line, we will talk about them again in a little bit. But just stay tuned. We'll talk about the LSU offensive line. And then finally, the secondary coming into the season, it was a concern. It remains a concern. Now, I don't know if they'll see weapons with that kind of length again, but they're going to see equally talented groups at Texas A&M. They're going to see equally talented groups uh, potentially if they get there in the SEC championship game. I think Alabama's group collectively showed enough uh, especially with the emergence of Amari Nyblack, where they could have some serious issues uh, with Alabama's length on the perimeter as well. So secondary, still a bit of a question mark for me as it relates to the LSU Tigers. All things considered, LSU was a team last year that got better as the season went along. They're going to need to again because last night was a less than stellar effort. And Florida State has reasserted itself as one of the top teams in America and Anyone that doubted them coming into the preseason, I think last night probably eliminated most of that doubt. Ten things we learned this weekend. Now, normally, we'll do this every Monday, by the way. Normally, we might have matchup-specific takeaways. So we'll have ten things every single Monday. Sometimes they'll be matchup-specific, but since it's week one, we figured we'd throw a little bit more of a wider net because there are a lot of takeaways and there are a lot of assumptions that are being made based on week one performance. So let's start with number one. I think this is everybody's number one, I might add. Colorado is for real. Now, a lot of people, I think, will look at Colorado and say, you know, they have great speed. They have great athleticism. That team is going to be a problem. I'm not suggesting that they win the big the pick the Pac-12. I'm not suggesting that they are going to make the playoff, but that team executed at an insanely high level offensively. Defensively, they have some issues. They have some things to iron out for sure. But offensively, and what Sean Lewis did, the offensive coordinator, it, I don't want to call it a masterpiece because that's too much, but it was beautiful, beautiful plan, and it was executed almost to perfection. To put the win in perspective, is the first non-interim coach to win his FBS coaching debut as at least a 20-point underdog since 1978 FBS-FCS split. Colorado's the first Power 5 team to win its season opener as at least a 20-point underdog since NC State in 1997. So this win is historically impactful. Shador Sanders, think about what he was able to accomplish. Accuracy, poise, distribution. He was the best player at times on the field. And he got the ball out quick. I thought Sean Lewis made it easy on him. And he allowed for a lot of run after catch. Third quarterback in the past 25 seasons with an 80% completion percentage, 500 passing yards, four touchdowns against a power five opponent. The only two quarterbacks that have done that, Michael Penix did it last year against Arizona, and then Geno Smith did it in 2012 against Baylor. So keep that in mind. This is a historically great performance by the quarterback. Dylan Edwards, freshman, coming in, 
knew he had really high ceiling, knew he was really athletic. He, I think, could develop into a remarkably dynamic piece, not just in the run game, but in the screen game and in the run after catch game. He is excellent. Love what I saw from Travis Hunter. We already kind of talked about it on Saturday's recap show. Guy that became the first FBS player in the last 20 seasons to have 100 receiving yards and an interception in the same game. But it was the instincts that he showed in the interception. A lot of people will make it out to be the catch. The instincts. He completely baited Chandler Morris into throwing that ball and made the play. That is next-level football. Because not only did he make the play, a lot of great athletes can make the play. But setting up Chandler Morris the way he did was a thing of beauty. That shows instincts, poise, and understanding that is well beyond his years for a guy that's just playing college football for the second season. And then finally, the amount of weapons that they have offensively between Edwards, Hunter, Xavier Weaver, who we haven't talked a whole lot about on the show, Jimmy Horn, who we told you had a chance to, I think, be a real difference maker. This is a really deep receiver core, and they're going to be a difficult matchup for a lot of teams. They all had over 100 yards. All the aforementioned guys had over 100 yards. And the program, Colorado, to keep things in perspective, they'd never had three 100-yard receivers in a game. They had four. Great job by Deion Sanders. Great job by the coaching staff. There'll be a problem moving forward. Let's go to number two as far as our takeaways. Roster turnover makes predicting early season games completely impossible. Colorado, 87 total new players from the 2022 team. 87 new players for Colorado. Arizona State, 77 players. Army, 76 new players. Texas State, who had an insane performance, an insane performance, 72 new first-year players. Charlotte, 70 new first-year players. Memphis, 66. Oklahoma, 65. Troy, 65. And then just on transfers alone, Colorado, 54. Charlotte, 46. Texas State, 45. Arizona State, 36. These are just transfer players. It's impossible to get a beat on the personnel here in the transfer portal era. And just to put things in perspective, TCU, in preparing for Colorado, and I told you this last week, they watched 37 different games in their breakdown. Usually, you're looking in season at a four-game, five-game, six-game. The coaches will watch every game, but the players are really living off of four games. Well, four TCU to feel prepared going into the game, and they clearly didn't do enough to prepare. 37 different games. That's what you got to deal with in the portal. So it's almost impossible, not just for us as analysts, but for opposing teams to understand the personnel that you're facing and the tendencies and the way they might be featured and how they'll be featured in this portal era. So it's impossible. Week one, week zero, probably even week two to an extent will be very difficult to handicap and prognosticate on moving forward. Number three. It's amazing to me how the perception of teams are almost 100% driven by what they do on offense. It really is amazing to me because long have we looked at teams and said, well, you know, that team's really good, but yeah, they, can, they can't score. How long have we said that about Iowa? 
right? Well, it's like became a punchline at times, like, oh, they can't score, so they must not be very good. But we're now saying that about Ohio State. What's wrong with Ohio State, right? What's wrong with Ohio State? That's what everyone's saying this weekend. That's a big takeaway. Ohio State's got issues. Okay, and I understand Indiana is limited offensively, but that was a dominant performance from Ohio State's defense. And it's exactly what you wanted to see. They were fast. They were physical. They were flying around. They were making tackles in the open field. And they played really collectively with the chip on their shoulder. So just because you don't score 70 doesn't mean you're not good. It's just I feel like the national narratives that are being written about teams, they're almost completely driven by what you do offensively. Everyone's praising Colorado for their performance, right? It was an amazing win. I just talked about how they're the real deal. I just told you a moment ago that I think they're going to be a real problem for everyone they play. I think they're a difficult matchup offensively. I think they're going to score a lot of points. But nobody seems to be talking about the issues that they had on the defensive side of the football. They gave up a million yards, a bunch of big plays, struggled with tackling, struggled with pursuit angles, didn't do a whole lot at the line of scrimmage. So everyone thinks Colorado's great. I do too. I think they're really good. But they got major issues on defense. And yet the narrative nationally is they're amazing. Not saying they're not. I'm just saying, why don't we value defense anymore at all? It's unbelievable. Why don't we value to a certain extent run game? Like if you run it down someone's throat and score 30 a la Michigan, it's like, ah, yeah, you know, offensive performance was fine. You know, th- yeah, they, they threw it three touchdowns through the air from McCarthy. Fine. Great. Awesome. I mean, it's like, unless you score 60, you're not good. I, I, I don't get it. It's just Georgia fans are all up in arms about their offensive performance thinking, oh, we got issues. We got issues. They score 48. They're fine. Defense look great. Defense did a lot of good things. We need to be open as fans and as educated consumers of the sport. We need to be open to identifying strengths on defense and weighing them comparably to the strengths that teams might have on offense. Because it takes two to tango. You can't win a championship with a terrible defense, and you can't win a championship with a terrible offense. It's just all we seem to praise are teams that score. How about teams that don't allow other teams to score? Wisconsin, they had 500 yards of total offense. Uh, And I'm falling victim to this. Part of the reason why I'm bullish on Wisconsin this year is because I think they're going to be able to light it up on the scoreboard. I'm absolutely one that needs to remind myself of this. And they had 500 yards total offense this past weekend. Ground game was excellent. Ches Malusi had 160, a couple touchdowns. Braylon Allen had 141, a couple touchdowns. So I also need to take my own advice here. I'm preaching, but I need to listen to the sermon because defense matters too. And a championship caliber football team, you cannot have a significant weakness on one side of the ball. You have to be balanced and you have to be great both offensively and defensively. So those teams that didn't play great offense this weekend doesn't mean they stink. Doesn't mean they can't win. Doesn't mean they ultimately won't win. Their offense will get going, hopefully. But we just seem to, if we're looking at the team as a balance or a scale, We put way more stock and emphasis into what you can do on the offensive side of the football. And then number four for takeaways. Look ahead situations are very, very real. Don't overreact. If your team played poorly, either in victory or defeat in a look ahead scenario, Baylor, 
they lose to Texas State. Bad performance. Just referenced that Texas State had 45 new scholarship players, brand new coach in G.J. Kinney. I'm sure like TCU, Baylor was chasing some ghosts in their preparation. Probably didn't have a good feel for what Texas State was going to do offensively. Does anyone think Dave Aranda can't coach defense now? Of course he can. Just it was a difficult setup because it was difficult to prepare for a team that you don't know what they're going to look like and what their personnel is going to look like. And taking it one step further, Baylor has an opportunity to play Utah this week. So I think they might have been looking ahead. Just being honest, Texas Tech lost to Wyoming. Not a great performance, especially on the defensive side. Texas Tech brings Oregon to their house this week. Were they looking ahead? Yes. No doubt about it. NC State against UConn. A little sloppy on defense early. Maybe not a great performance offensively. I think UConn deserves a little bit of a tip of the cap, too. They did some nice things. Were they looking ahead, potentially, to Notre Dame coming up this week? Yeah, I think they were. How about Iowa? Little, you know, not great in the fourth quarter. Kind of exhaled. Looked okay offensively, at least early. I think there's room to grow there, but were they maybe looking this ahead to the matchup this week against Iowa State? What about Arizona State over Southern Utah? Arizona State plays Oklahoma State this weekend. They didn't look very good there on Thursday night. It's probably worth it. San Diego State over Idaho. San Diego State plays UCLA. So look-ahead situations are real, and we need to be mindful of the overreaction. Let's not overreact to a less-than-stellar Week 1 performance. Let's assess in Week 2... If they continue to struggle, maybe that's who they really are. But I think a lot of people are jumping to conclusions that are premature, at least at this moment. Takeaway number five. If your offensive line is a liability, then your offense might be a liability. The best example this weekend was South Carolina. South Carolina, I think, has excellent weapons on the perimeter. Between Xavier Leggett, who had a phenomenal game on Saturday, Juice Wells, who's back, Spencer Rattler at quarterback, who's back, Amarian Brown, who's back at wide receiver, Trey Knox at tight end, excellent, Joshua Simon, transfer from Western Kentucky at tight end, he's very, very athletic and a great contributor. They got weapons galore, but guess what they don't have? A capable offensive line right now. That is going to be a significant issue for South Carolina moving forward. If your offensive line struggling, your offense is probably going to struggle. Let's talk about Ohio State. How about the left side of the offensive line? Long have we talked about Ohio State's offensive line. That's been my biggest concern coming into the season, even more so than the quarterback situation. Josh Simmons transferred from San Diego State. I didn't think he played very well if I'm going to be completely honest with you. Uh, I thought it was a disappointing start. A guy that you'd heard some good things about and just didn't look very comfortable and had some issues. But I thought maybe what was more in, maybe even more problematic for Ohio State, the left guard, Donovan Jackson, uh, thought maybe, according to people that have been really watching, a lot of people thought he might be one of the best offensive linemen on the team. I didn't think he played very well. And it was pretty shaky. And if you're a right-handed quarterback and you don't trust that left side, man, that is a problem. So they have to get that addressed. Now, will they start rolling some other guys in like Shabola or Montgomery? Uh, will Justin Fry 
uh, at the the head, the offensive line coach. I, I have a lot of faith in him. Will he start rolling guys in? Will he start mixing and matching? I don't know, but they have to get that issue resolved here in the next two weeks. Um, Youngstown State, not going to be a problem. Uh, Western Kentucky in a couple weeks, probably not going to be a problem. But the offensive line play, big issue. And then that leads me to LSU. LSU, they got to get more push. You have to get more push if you're going to become the team that you want to become. And you think about kind of being off schedule. They were in critical second and longs. They were in third and long situations. And then, boom, you got Jared Verse. You got Patrick Payton. You got you got at, at Florida State defenders are able to pin their ears back and go. Well, if you can't run it on first and second down, you're putting a lot of pressure on those tackles. You're putting a lot of pressure on that offensive line. That group has got to be better in the run game. They have to be. And you think about what LSU is going to see. Alabama, they can get after you at the quarterback spot. At the defensive end spot, they can, they can tee off. Uh, Mississippi State, that's an aggressive group. They got them in two weeks. Uh, you got Texas A&M, pretty good defensive line as far as getting after the quarterback. So LSU, Florida, I don't, I don't think Florida's an elite defense whatsoever, but I do think they have some guys that can make life difficult on you, and I think Florida will be pretty stout uh, if they improve in a few areas. will be pretty stout up front defensively. They got to grow and they got to play better than they did against Utah. But either way, offensive line play, no one wants to talk about it. It's not sexy. I'll tell you what, it can derail your season in a heartbeat. Let's go to number six. A lot of us draw conclusions on teams in 2023 based on what was a weakness last year, right? Hey, this has been a problem. It's going to continue to be a problem. Hey, this is something that was a concern last year. I'm still concerned about it. Just because it was a weakness last year doesn't mean it's going to be a weakness this year. And I think we can all grow and learn from this and not speaking so definitively and, and drawing hold-me-to-em conclusions based on last year's tape. Best example is North Carolina's pass rush. North Carolina's front seven defensively. I'm not breaking any news and telling you that North Carolina really, really struggled last season. Gene Chizik came under an immense amount of pressure and a lot of off-season criticism. Well, he said, I went back to the drawing board, I decided to kind of study college football, the defenses that are doing it really well in college football, and I concluded this, that disruption kills offenses. So I'm going to be more aggressive. I'm going to blitz. I'm going to pressure. I'm going to allow my defensive linemen to shoot their shot because that's the way you win in college football nowadays. Offenses are too good. If you just play conservative, bend, don't break defense, offenses are too good. They're going to hold the ball. They're going to convert on third down. They're going to move it down the field, and they're going to score points. But if you can get them off schedule by creating more negative plays, that's the way you stymie offense here in 2023. Gene Chizik recognized that, and North Carolina just had nine sacks. That's their most in a game in the last 25 years. They pressured Spencer Rattler 19 times on his 52 dropbacks. That's a 37% pressure rate. You know what their pressure rate was last year? 10%. Nearly four times better than what they had on pressures alone. It's the second most pressure Spencer Rattler's ever faced in a game. Really remarkable. They had six sacks on third down. That's the entire total that they had last year. Last year, they had six sacks over a 14-game season. They had six sacks on third down. Well, in week one, game one, 
six sacks just for North Carolina's pass rush. How about Mississippi State? Long, they've not been a great run team. It was all about Will Rogers. Hey, Will, you got to throw for four bills or we're not going to be able to win. And I know we need to take it into account at Southeastern Louisiana. I get it. I'm not going to try to sit here and say that it was, you know, it's not, put it this way, they didn't run for 300 against Georgia. But that's a group that can push you around a little bit. I was very impressed with the tape when I went back and watched it. 298 yards on the ground. That complements the passing attack of Will Rogers, who went for 227. If they can have that kind of balance offensively, that's going to do wonders for Mississippi State as they continue to move forward. And then finally, as far as things that were a weakness a year ago, but might actually this year be a pretty good strength. How about Notre Dame's wide receiver core? Or let's just go one step further. Notre Dame's weapons, if you will, because it's not just receivers. Think about the running backs the last couple of weeks that have been involved in the passing game. You had multiple running backs, six receptions on six targets for 93 yards, a combined 82 on touchdown receptions and runs by Jadarian Price and Jabron Payne. So I'm really encouraged by what I've seen. You got three tight ends involved in the passing game, which is really, really exciting. Mitchell Evans appears poised to take a step as far as a reliable weapon. And look, a lot of this has to do with the improved play at quarterback. I mean, we can't deny that. The weapons are going to get better if the quarterback play gets better. That's I'm not breaking any you know, news there. But Chris Tyree looks really comfortable. Holden Stays looks really comfortable. Jaden Thomas, very productive day this past weekend. Tobias Merriweather, pretty good, solid. Feel good about his emergence. Jaden Greathouse and Rico Flores. I mean, we're talking about guys now that I'm not going to say that they're a really, really, really explosive, you know, take over the game wide receivers, but collectively, and we talked the depth, do they have a number one? I don't know, but what did Chancey Stuckey tell us a couple weeks ago? He said, last year, we really had five guys or so. Now we have 10 and it's starting to play itself out as far as the dynamic weapons that Notre Dame has. And we'll find out where they're at this week. NC State will be a great test and we'll get a better understanding because playing against, you know, the two teams they've played against so far, not going to really test them the same way. But I'm cautiously optimistic. I don't even want to say cautiously. I'm really optimistic about what I've seen from those pass catchers at Notre Dame the last two weeks. Let's go to number seven. This is glaring. This is glaring right now. Offense is ahead of defense right now in college football. There were points galore on Saturday. Six teams scored 65 points or more across the FBS. That's tied for the second most on a single day, single day in the poll era since 1936. That trails only September 6th of 2014. So six teams, 65 points or more. Four AP top 25 teams scored 65 plus points. USC, Oklahoma, Ole Miss, and Oregon. It's tied for the most in a single day in the poll era. Three AP rate teams scored 73 points on Saturday. That's the most on a single day on the poll era. On Saturday, AP ranked teams averaged 47.8 points per game. That's the most points per game by ranked teams on a single day ever. Offense right now, especially in week one, and I think part of this has to do with the fact that you're doing seven on seven all summer. You're throwing it around all summer. You know what you're not doing? Tackling. Pursuit angles, 
winning at the line of scrimmage in the trenches, practicing inside run. Offense should be ahead of the defense right now, but hopefully that overcorrects over the course of time. Part of that had to do, obviously, with some teams playing against lower-level competition, but still, when we're talking about historical averages, where teams are averaging 48 points a game, it's insane. All right, let's go to number eight. Quarterback competition updates. Alabama and Ohio State. Let's start with Ohio State. If you really watch Kyle McCord in the game, and I went back and I watched it closely, he it's it's not that he was hesitant. He just looked a little gun shy, right? You Buckeye fans that watched it, did you get the sense that he was kind of looking over his shoulder? Did you? Because I I kind of did a little bit, a little gun shy, little little scared to cut it loose. You know, maybe just a little uneasy. Probably thinking about, hey, man, if I make a mistake, Devin Brown's going in. That's exactly what happened. Brown came in on the fourth possession right after Kyle McCord threw the interception. And granted, went three and out, but you didn't really get a good look there. I mean, the play broke down. I mean, Chip Trainum, you know, faked that. And Dunham was right there to intercept the pass. I mean, it just Kyle McCord made the mistake and then Devin Brown went in. I think that's a really hard place to be as a quarterback. If you're scared to make a mistake, you cannot play winning football. You just can't. So Devin Brown, probably a little frustrated too. Ryan Day said he was going to get meaningful snaps. Quote, this was a quote from Ryan Day. I would like to have seen Devin play a little bit more, end quote. Ryan Day admitted that. Maybe you evaluate him a little bit better against Youngstown State, but you need to make a decision because it clearly impacted Kyle McCord's play. I thought there were some really good moments from Kyle McCord, by the way. Uh, three plays that really stood out in my mind. Third quarter, second and nine. The ball that he threw over the defender to Cade Stover that will turn into like a 50-yard gain or whatever, that's a heck of a throw. Uh, maybe the best throw of the day when he threw it to Fleming, uh, probably like a 25-yard gain or so, uh, I thought that was a heck of a throw. He also had the 24-yard touchdown to, to Harrison that was negated on the illegal touching penalty. That's a heck of a throw. There were some really bright spots for Kyle McCord, but I think he will play more confidently if they come out and say, this is our guy, no matter what, moving forward. And then finally at Alabama, Jalen Milrow, I thought, did a really nice job. I think he has absolutely separated himself from the field, very accurate on the deep throws, maybe a little bit off the mark early with some of the throws, just a little behind, but the accuracy got better as the game went along. Thought he threw a good job, do, good job of throwing to his left, which was not something he'd done a ton of. Most of the stuff he'd done kind of underneath and really to the right, he favored that side. Did a good job of throwing to his left. We got his hips open. Got Was accurate on some of those throws, especially on some third down conversions. I thought the deep balls were excellent. I loved the throw to Bond on the post off play action for the big touchdown. I also loved the throw to Nyblack to the left-hand side where he got it up and down. Nyblack went up, snagged it. I thought he was very, very accurate. As far as what we saw from Tyler Buckner, not a lot. But I think he's probably the number two right now because the quarterback run element is going to be something. And Ty Buckner gives you a little bit more of that than what you're going to get from Ty Simpson. He played as well, but either way, does look right now like it's Jalen Milrose's show moving forward, and it should be because he played very, very well in the first performance of the season. Final two takeaways here as we put a bow on our 10 big things we learned. The Pac-12 is the real deal, guys. Uh, I think it's the deepest league in college football, and I characterize depth, by the way, I characterize depth as the amount of teams that can win the conference. I'm not talking about teams that can be competitive or how many guys that are going to get drafted or any of that stuff. How many teams can win the league? 
And I think the Pac-12 is the deepest. Now, people push back on that. Everyone has different interpretations of, quote, depth. But we're talking about a group that collectively is 13-0 right now. And obviously, SC is is 2-0. It's the first time every team in the Pac-12 has won their season opener since 1932. Eight teams that played averaged 52.6 points. That's the highest mark for a conference in a single day. This is on Saturday. In a single day, the FBS-FCS split in 1978. Eight teams on Saturday scored an average of nearly 53 points. That's the most points per game on a single day for the Pac-12 conference ever. We know what SC is. We've broken them down. Caleb Williams, amazing. Great personnel, great weapons. Better defensive performance, I thought, this week. But how about Washington? Washington, after a little bit of a slow start, I mean, a little bit of a slow start, Boise came and played, they played hard, man. They were physical on the perimeter, but then ultimately the dam broke. And you think about that second quarter performance, um, four, I mean, four touchdowns in the second quarter from Michael Penix alone, just pulling away and just completely dismantling a Boise State team that's proud and plays hard. That was a remarkable performance. I think Penix and company, they are so good. I can't wait to see what they continue to do. This will be a team that we will watch all the way through the season. We know that. How about Oregon? I I know that it was Portland State. I get it. But you score 81. (laughs) That's pretty remarkable. And that's the most points they've ever scored uh, since 1936. They did score 97 against Williamette in, um, in 1916. So if you want to take that, you can. (laughs) I won't. (laughs) Oregon State, I thought, was amazing. And what I love most, too, and I think San Jose State is is pretty good, by the way. I I think that that team's got some athleticism. And Oregon State, after what was a bit of a tough start, kind of found their footing there in the second quarter. DJ Uyunglele looked very comfortable. He was accurate. He was decisive. And I thought he did a really, really nice job. Uh, And what I love too, and I talked about this a little bit with DJ, it's not always just the throws. What he can contribute in the run game is something that's going to be really beneficial. So if he can stay steady like that, Oregon State is a major problem. Then we know the offensive line, phenomenal. Jonathan Smith, I thought, had a great run plan. Bunch of different looks for Damian Martinez, who now just recorded his seventh career 100-yard receiving game. Uh, that That's seven 100-yard games in the last eight outings for Damian Martinez. The Pac-12, we've already talked about Colorado. Uh, I think UCLA was solid um, in some ways. Areas to improve there for sure. Stanford got a nice win on the road at Hawaii. Tough place to play. A lot of people thought Hawaii might pull that one off. Stanford went out took care of business. How about Cal? Cal now welcomes Auburn next week. That's a big game. I think their offense was sensational. Granted, not a great competition, but either way, North Texas is a group that has been decent in the past, and Cal took care of business. Could have very easily been looking ahead, and they didn't. They took them down. Pac-12 is awesome. Utah, what they did on Thursday, love Utah. Always love Utah. Uh, Washington State looked good. I mean, they're Pac-12 guys, that conference can get it. And then number 10, for the first time in a while, the SEC looked a little human. And it's there's some good. Let's talk quickly before we get to the eye-opening observe 
observations. Let's talk quickly about the good because it wasn't all bad. There were 10 teams in the conference that scored 40 or more points. It's the most ever uh, on a single day in conference history. That was on Saturday. Uh, They had 10 teams that won by 30 or more points. That's the most ever by the conference in a single day. So they had good performances against lower level competition. They should. Shouldn't be overly surprising. But the good is heavily outweighed by the bad. There were three marquee games that the SEC participated in this weekend. And if you want to consider Tennessee, Virginia, a marquee game, by all means, I support you in your decision. I, however, did not view it as such. LSU was a favorite against Florida State, got their doors blown off. Uh, South Carolina was a slight underdog to North Carolina, got beat badly, and probably could have been worse if you look at some of the missed opportunities that North Carolina had, including a Drake May miss touchdown pass, which never happens down the left side to Kobe Pesor. Uh, and then finally, Florida. And a lot of people will look at it. Florida, of course, did not play well. Tons of self-inflicted mistakes. We talked about it on Friday's show. It was not a good performance by Florida, and there's a lot to clean up, and I think they can clean it up. But in the three big marquee games, the SEC in big-time matchups, the reason why they have the reputation that they have is because they dominate the marquee games. They've fared very well in that regard in the last two decades. So to see them in week one lose the way they lost in the most heavily publicized games of the weekend was something that I'm not used to, something that I haven't seen in quite a while. So does it mean the league's bad? No, because to be honest with you, I thought South Carolina would come back to earth. I said during media days and South Carolina fans got really mad at me. I thought South Carolina could very easily start the season one and four. I mean, they really could. And I think that's even more of a reality now with what I saw with their offensive line. So I don't think South Carolina is a contender this year by any stretch. I don't think Florida is a contender, but Florida losing the way they lost is unsettling without question. It is very, very unsettling. So they need to clean things up. And the health of the league is not going to be necessarily on display when you take into account, I think North Carolina might be the third best team in the ACC. South Carolina is probably the ninth best team in the SEC in that range or so. So maybe it's not a fair fight. Utah might be the class of the Pac-12. We'll find out. Florida's probably ninth, 10th in the SEC. So was it fair matchups necessarily? I don't know. Uh, Florida State's the number one team in the ACC. Is LSU third, fourth? Where do you have them? I don't know. Either way, the SEC usually holds their own in games like this, and they didn't. So that should be something that is a little bit eye-opening to everybody that's watching the sport and watching through SEC-colored glasses. That'll do it for us here at Always College Football. Please continue to like, rate, and subscribe, and check back here in a couple days. We have more in store. Tons to break down. We will break down the Clemson and Duke performance, break break down what we saw, what we liked, what we didn't like. So keep it locked in here at Always College Football. I encourage all of you to continue to like, rate, and subscribe. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a rating. It'd be huge. If you can hit that thumbs up down on the YouTube channel, that'd be awesome as well. We so appreciate all of you, and we look forward to continuing to attack the college football season together. For all of us here at Always College Football, for Mark, Jake, Jack, I'm Greg. We hope you have a wonderful day. Happy Labor Day. And remember, it's always college football. Hey, guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.